in these rather rapt, euphoric post-resurrection days, there are two different, quite different concepts that we are working with. They are to do with Jesus and his relationship to his disciples and therefore to us, his disciples. One is that Jesus is Savior, Rescuer, the one who has saved us from something, from sin, the one who has done something for us and done it freely as a gift to be received in faith, in good faith, if you like, and done this something for us by dying. The other relationship in which we and the disciples find ourselves is to Jesus as Lord, the one who rules over that which he not only has saved, and that's not just us, but all creation, but created, who now implicates us in this work of lordship, rule, governance, the one, in other words, for whom we are now to do something and do it freely out of gratitude. But this something we will do is something we cannot do alone, and so he too, Jesus as Lord, will do this in us and with us and for us and through us by living in us and with us and for us and through us. The one is what Jesus has done once and for all for us. The other is what we are doing for Jesus. Yes, but better, it is also and indeed what Jesus is doing over and over and over again with us and through us for others. Now, working the nuances of these simple statements, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior, working out in our lives how the truths that these statements express coexist, that's what keeps us occupied when we gathered here and when we are scattered out there. And all of this is what we call the gospel, the proclamation, the good news. Now, we hear of this gospel this morning. And we hear something else. The gospel is the promise of the forgiveness of sin. The basic unit of this transaction of giving and receiving is forgiveness. Jesus as Savior gives it, we receive it. Jesus through us as Lord gives it to others. We are saved to serve. And to serve is to see others saved and all of creation in the process. Serving what? Serving up what? Forgiveness. Saving from what? From sin. And sin is? For now, sin is self-serving. So we are being saved from serving ourselves in order to serve God and others. Now this is about more than getting the t-shirt, this business of serving. It's about more than getting onto the right team and going out to do good. You read a lot of that these days, and covenant loyalty and covenant belonging are very important. But if that's all we are doing, wearing the T-shirt, then all of this is some pretty thin soup when it's all been boiled away. The transition from serving self to serving King Jesus does not happen instantly by donning some new habit. 
We are born with an inherent predisposition to self-service. That means seeing ourselves as ends and everything else in creation and God even as means to serve our ends, as means of fulfilling our desires, our hopes, and our dreams. And that tendency to self-service can be pretty persistent, whatever T-shirt we are wearing at the time. You don't get this tendency, this thing which is curved in on itself, in corvatus, in se, as Luther said. You don't get these sickle cells out of your bloodstream overnight. They have to be removed by a process of purification, of separating our desires and our hopes and our dreams for world domination from God's desires or God's hopes and God's dreams, if I may dare to say it that way, for world domination. Now, whether God wins or we win has been spelled out, so our hope is in God, in Jesus, and in King Jesus. And as our text says today, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We have this hope, and this hope works in us to draw us on, and as we are drawn on, a process of purification begins. How is this purification undertaken? Not lightly. The process of becoming pure, of becoming holy, is exceedingly unbecoming at times. But it happens. Now, the message of all our readings is the same. Christ came as Savior, the fulfillment of all the promises of the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is shorthand for the entire Old Testament, as, through which, as Peter says in Acts, God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would reign, would rule, would save. no that his Christ would suffer. And Jesus himself says in the Gospel of John that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins, again, this is all that is on offer right now. It's not spiritual fulfillment, closer walk with God, health and wealth and victory in the world, not even on the table. Forgiveness of sins, which only comes about through repentance, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That Christ should suffer and die and then rise. The command, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come, that the blood that courses through you, that good rich red blood, which makes its way from the heart to the lungs, gathering all the impurities in your body, spiritually in your soul, may be filtered, that all the sins in it may somehow be absorbed, be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come. That you will receive the covenant blessing promised to Abraham, that you should in turn be a blessing to others, this is very much Jesus as Lord, but to bless, you must first receive the blessing. 
by giving and receiving forgiveness. Jesus as Savior working again. Giving up your sinful predispositions and receiving God's strengthening of your godly dispositions. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, that's us, to bless us by turning every one of us from our wickedness. So if there is a blessing, it is pretty clear what it is. Repentance, turning from weakness, and the forgiveness of sins. First John, you know that he appeared in order to take away poverty, sickness, social injustice, ecological ruin, <laughs> sins. And sin is self-serving, from which all poverty all injustice, and a great deal of sickness flow. Sin is self-serving, and as such, sin is lawlessness. As he says, sin is setting yourself above the law of God and serving yourself, as has been said. Sin is self-serving, making yourself the end of everything instead of the means to another end. That would be difficult enough, but of course there's more than that. First, the good news, we really can't serve ourselves. There's grace here. We have to serve somebody, as the immortal St. Robert Dillon said. We have two choices in that. We serve God or we serve the prince of this world. Well, that's the other side. There is no neutral ground. So in serving yourself... You're really serving and enslaved to the will of the prince of this world. By repenting of sin, receiving a new life, an ongoing process, a new heart, radically reordered desires and hopes, we exchange our shackles through a long and process, painful process for hope. We are purified, cleansed of that which cohabits with goodness in our bodies and souls. Sin is filtered out, burned off by life, by living. What is left is that which is as good as gold, purified gold, that with which the good God endowed us as his children. Such is that wondrous love of his. As we are told, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We have not yet seen it, but we know it's there. And that we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. A wonderful little nugget that has to be unpacked. I can do a bit. When he appears and we face him face to face and see him with eyes of sight, when hope and faith are finally swallowed up by love, then we shall see how much of him there is in us, how much more we are like him when we are most ourselves, most our true selves. That's the truth that the prince of this world doesn't want us to hear or to know. Then his service will be our delight. We shall experience the perfect freedom that is when his will and our wills are one and the same. When everything we want, when everything we would do to serve ourselves, if you like, 
is really, as it turns out, what he wants us to do to serve him. That's why we are made, and that's why we are restored through his work. One of the most significant living and now living examples of how this work works itself out in life has been given to us by that wonderful saint, Chuck Colson, who left us yesterday to continue his journey in the presence of the Lord. Colson, as you know, was the prisoner who was saved. He was actually saved before he became a prisoner and set free to serve, most notably fellow prisoners. It was my privilege to work as chapter director of an organization, Prison Fellowship, which Colson founded. I never got to meet Colson, but I can assure you the determination that incarceration would not just make of the prison a college for cons, honing their skills and establishing a string of contacts, all designed to bring them right back into the prison at some future point again and again, the determination that this would not be all that happened within the prison walls, but that they could, through Jesus Christ, be set free to serve him in the world, was the motive force, and it shaped everything that was done or set out to be done by that organization. And the determination was founded on hope, and the hope was grounded in experience, Colson's own experience. I quote a little of the wonderful obituary in C.T. Before his conversion to Christianity, Colson was described as an aggressive political mastermind who drank heavily, chain-smoked, and smeared opponents. He served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Colson said that he would walk over his own grandmother to serve Nixon. So there is a sense of serving something other than himself in this. <laughs> but the zeal with which Colson took the magnificent mind which he'd been given and used it to serve maybe not entirely pure ends was uh, something which estranged him from everyone who could have been a friend for him when he was on the way down. The obituary notes that he was indicted on Watergate-related charges. I have to add that they had very much difficulty uh, really linking Colson with Watergate directly, but so strong was the force of the conversion that had already begun in Colson that he found a way that they could actually indict him, if you like. And uh, he found a loophole somewhere in which they could and did send him to prison. Very interesting. We don't read a lot about that. He was given a seven-month term. And he watched his friends who'd gone in, released before him. He suffered intensely in prison, but the suffering was the result of a suffering process that had already begun in his conversion, a massive work of purification. And he did this suffering surrounded by the sneers, the contempt, the distrust of everybody in the world and in the church. After he was released from prison, he published Born Again, helping popularize the term many evangelicals used to self-identify. 
Colson's public commitment to his faith drew initial skepticism from those who wondered whether he was attempting to profit from a conversion narrative. Criticism faded over time with his 30 years plus of commitment to prison ministry, and not just through his effectiveness in ministry, but through what he was, what he became. A member of our community, uh, Judy Newitt, did encounter him. And she described what I've read of again and again, uh, his utter kindness, his kindliness, his willing to put aside whatever was working through his mind. And he always had a lot on his mind because he was always doing a lot for the kingdom. And simply engage one-on-one, look you in the eye, listen, and show his grace and his kindness. He became an utterly transformed person. Timothy George says this, the most important takeaway is that he was a specimen of God's amazing grace, God's wondrous love, one of the most remarkable in modern times. Over time, he proved to the whole world that this is the real thing. We do a lot to try to determine what qualifies someone to be a saint. We all have different processes. They involve miracles. They involve all kinds of things. If there is a saint that has emerged in our time, I can't think of anyone who has a greater claim to that title than Chuck Colson. As Michael Cromarty, Vice President of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, says he played political hardball for keeps. He was ruthless. He wanted to win at all costs, and he had a reputation as a person who wanted to win at all costs. But I think he's going to be, if he's going to be remembered for anything, he's going to be remembered as a person who had a complete turnaround in his life, a complete turnaround. Now, it's nothing less that our gracious God is asking for all of us. Sainthood is not just for plaster statues, honorary titles, and magical ceremonies. Sainthood is really about letting the God of this world change your agenda change your desires, change our hopes so that what we hope for is to be his servants and serving him to serve his world. God's work as Savior and as Lord is shown dramatically in Colson's change of heart. The change begins from within It's not some kind of duty where you set yourself down and say, well, if I do this and this and this, I'll just make myself be a better person. I'll go through the motions. There's a place for habit, and we'll get to that. But if it's just work and no joy, none of us are going to get very far. We will become those wooden, earnest servants of the kingdom, which are such a burden for evangelical Christianity. Colson did it for the joy that was set 
before him. And he went from one imprisoned in the world, not to one imprisoned in a sense of how he should behave in the church, but to one truly set free from outward appearance, working to see others set free from that same imprisonment of the heart, from serving self to serving God and others. That's Colson's journey, and that is our journey too. May we be able, through the example of this saint, and above all, by the purifying power of God, of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, to see this as our journey too. Amen.